Hi, my name is Florian Hofmeister. I'm the cinematographer of Pachinko, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Florian Hofmeister, BSC, the director of photography of Pachinko on Apple TV+. Florian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I love this show. It's it's just so unique. And, you know, eight episodes. Uh, I think the, the final episode is yet to be released, right? I'm still catching up to it. But I think it's, as of this moment, I think we're uh, still a week out. Am I right? That's correct. This Friday, I think it uh, finishes. So it's a long-winded way of saying that by the time this episode is released, the entire series will be out. So all of you guys listening, go and check it out for yourself if you haven't already. The show is called Pachinko. Uh, and there's so much to talk about. And we'll get to all of it in just a moment. But before we get there, I just want to talk to you guys. You know, I don't ask for much. I ask for very little. I want you to go and subscribe to us on YouTube. Now, there's a reason why. First of all, we post all of our interviews on YouTube. And when we do that, you get to see the guest as they're talking. And we also have these things called show shorts, which are little clips of each episode. And we enhance those with behind-the-scenes photos and videos. It's a great way to have the full Go Creative Show experience. So head over to YouTube, search for Go Creative Show, subscribe to us, and don't forget to click on that bell so that you're notified when we release new videos. Of course, all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, Florian. What is Pachinko? Just the, give us like the, the elevator pitch. What is the show about? <laughs> elevator pitch is a good <laughs> thing. It's, a, it's an adaptation of a uh, successful um, a novel that I, I don't know when it was published a few years back. Um, it describes uh, the uh, family saga of this Korean uh, woman that, uh, you know, from her birth and then her movement over to uh, Japan. Lots of people left colonialized Korea to, you know, go into diaspora and, and make their fortune in other places. And um, the I think that's a particular thing that how Su Yu, the showrunner, actually adapted the novel because the novel, I think, has a linear um, narrative. And she came up with a concept that uh, uh, later on the story develops that the main character is called Sunja and her grandson returns from the United States where He's been working to work in a bank in Japan. And uh, Su Yu developed these two timelines, basically birth and uh, Sunja's growing up in the colonial uh, Korea uh, with the 1980s timeline of her um, her uh, um, grandson. Uh, grandson Solomon returning yeah. to Japan. Well, you what's know, so interesting... Basically the story. And what's interesting about this is that you're playing in two different time periods throughout the whole show. And what I think a lot of cinematographers, a lot of directors of photography would do and have done is change the look of the series to reflect the different time periods. I mean, changes in the lenses and the lighting in the camera. For this... It doesn't seem as though you did that. It seemed like you wanted to keep something similar throughout. And I think that's a really interesting approach. And I want to talk to you about that. Why, or I guess, how did you handle the changes in time periods in Pachinko? 
Yeah, I mean, when we started working, so, uh, you know, I was a uh, block one uh, uh, cinematographer. So I got there, I got involved in this quite early, about roughly two and a half, three months before you actually start production. So I received all the scripts um, and I went to Korea. Uh, we did some location scouting and then Koganada, who's the director who uh, did the first block with me, um, arrived as well. And we had these long chats and conversations about what we wanted to do. And, um, you know, there's one way to of looking at cinema simply as a succession of moments in time, because that's how we receive it. You know, it's like A meets B and C, and it just runs along. There's another way of looking at it, of course, more as a depiction of space. So that actual, uh, actually time doesn't really matter that much. It's more the way that you depict space and how you actually ground people in the space that they are living. And, you know, in the main character, Sunja, both timelines in a way happen simultaneously. One is that, you know, her grandson is visiting her. Uh, and the other one is, of course, all the memories of her past. Now, the, the series itself starts linear in a way that we are being told the story of Sunja being born and then growing up. But then it cuts quite quickly to Solomon. And I thought it's far more interesting to challenge the audience, you know, to if you get to to almost diffuse some of the uh, the framework so that, you know, the unexpected stimulates you more, you know, you're opening yourself actually more to the story we felt as if, if we had done it by the book, you know, you kind of cut over and say, oh, I'm here. Oh, I'm there. You know, so it just keeps it, you keep, keep the audience more on their toes, so to say, you know, and hopefully, you know, enable people to engage more because there's a lot of things, of course, that could keep you from engaging. You know, it's all in foreign language. It's subtitled, you know, so that was our, our way of entry into this. And I'm very happy about that, by the way. I think having some, really cons- yeah, having some consistency in it, I think is helpful as, you know, in, in an English speaking audience member watching it, I see what you mean. It's like, you don't want to have too much distraction going on. But you had mentioned something a moment ago about, about this idea of capturing space and characters in space. What do, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, we always thought that um, when she actually leaves, which is in episode four, this is when the second block takes over. And then we want, I want to credit, you know, uh, uh, director Justin Chon and his DOP, Andy Cheng, then took over and continued the second block of the series. You know, they, they she, uh, you know, goes to Japan. She she uh, gets to um, uh, Osaka and uh, ends up in this tiny neighborhood with like really cramped spaces. You know, this girl has grown up on an island, very poor, but you know, exposed to you know the countryside, to the elements, and suddenly she sits in this tiny little box in uh, Osaka. So we felt that in the first three episodes, we really wanted to ground people so that. Basically, as an audience, we have kind of had the same experience, the same spatial experience. So by the moment she actually, you know, walks down the tiny little street and and ends up in this little box house that you almost feel it. And you don't even need to, you know, the characters don't need to talk about it. You can just feel when the moment she opens the door, puts out the washing in that courtyard, you go like, God, this is crazy. You know, the difference. That's what's what what we what I associated and and Koganada talked about and I talked about the concept of space. You know, so that's more in the set design. That's more in the you know the locations that you're choosing, versus creating a different world through lens and camera. 
It's yeah, it's a bit, although it is an abstract way of saying we would shoot it quite loose, you know. So basically, we didn't want to end up just in the in the close-ups. And also we shot large format uh, digital cinematography. So, you know, digital cinematography has advanced a lot with the sensor sizes getting bigger and bigger. Now, I personally, I'm not that much interested in the gain of resolution. I find it rather interesting how the field of view changes with the lens. You know, so basically if the sensor gets bigger, the field of view gets bigger as well. Mm. And you can use, you know, like a 50 mil that probably has about the field of view of a, you know, 27. So you can compose, um, you know, iconic close-ups while still, you know, giving more, like almost like shooting anamorphic, you know, like allowing more of the spatial uh, orientation. So we would shoot looser, you know, our close-ups would be like from shoulder up, you know, we very rarely went really tight. We shot large format and this way, you know, we, uh, we wanted to, uh, uh, create a more like a constant awareness of space as opposed to traditional way to say, shoot a wide shot and then you, you, you know, go in and go get tighter, you know, in a way that but how sense. does, how does that support the story in your opinion, that, that style of shooting being a little looser coming out maybe further than uh, someone traditionally would in a close up? What does that do for the story? Well, what I think is, you know, I mean, I think the story is very, very strong from, you know, uh, it was very, the, the writing was very strong. So you have these really uh, existentialist conflicts of people going away. You have the suppression of the colonial system. You have a girl that is, you know, uh, pregnant from another man. They're not, they're not married. Like, so these really big themes. So to me, uh, they, uh, I always try to approach my personal approach to cinematography is a bit like um i don't want to put a head on a head so to say so i it's more interesting how what you can bring in addition and sometimes what you also take away so not to distract so uh, i thought that if we um root this this story in this place that that would be the biggest achievement the cinematography would have to do you know to create an and uh, uh, um, an atmosphere that's almost, you know, you can almost smell the kimchi, you can almost feel the rice, you know, you can feel the elements. That was the idea, you know, and the story, I think, is almost strong enough to just run on its own feet, you know. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think it's it's a unique approach and one that really complemented the storyline as well. And like I had mentioned before, the most of it, I mean, is in Korean and Japanese. There are moments that are in English, but they're fleeting. Um, so, you know, you're, you're watching subtitles. And I was shocked to hear that you did not speak either of those languages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, when I got sent the scripts, um, I, I'd worked with Su Yu, the showrunner before. So we did a, a series called, the first uh, season of a series called The Terror. Um, and so we knew each other, you know, we had established some form of trust. Um, but I, um, you know, when, when something like friendship, you're uh, fortunate enough to take something like a friendship away from a working relationship. I don't really expect to be asked necessarily again, because there's, you know, there's as many cinematographers as there are people in the world. So, and maybe I'm not the right person, but she sent me the script anyway. So I read and I thought, man, this is such a Korean story. You know, would I be the right person to do this? And it's also what I find personally, it's also a reflection about what it means to be Korean. You know, in, in many ways, I think it's a tribute 
that our gen you know the Koreans of our generation give to their parents and their grandparents about the hardship that these people have gone through to enable you know uh, these people now to live in the states and you know pursue all these creative things but then i came to at three where there is and i won't spoil it but there's the moment when uh, uh sunja and her future husband discuss the potential of uh, going away and there was such an amazing scene and considering you know what is at stake for the characters it was such an adult way to negotiate something and i thought i have to do that you know, it doesn't matter to me. They could speak, you know, <laughs> it, I mean, so, um, and I also thought maybe, you know, if you approach it, my curiosity that I have as a, you know, outsider to what ha what's happening can also enable me to search for something more universal, you know, in the imagery so that I could help, you know, maybe, you know, to open the story up to people that are not from that culture and practically, um, there is uh, English is not, a, you know, there's, uh, of course, there's tons of Koreans that speak English, but within the Korean film industry, there are definitely some people that don't, and we had to work with translators, but it also applied to many people. And Koganada, for example, he's uh, born Korean, but he grew up in the States, so his Korean isn't, uh, you know, on spot either. So some of other, uh, the whole crew had to go through translators at times, you know, and, how does it affect the cinematography and decisions that you make when you're filming when you don't know the language that's being spoken by the actors? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I, of course, we had English translation of the script, so I knew what was going on. Um, I sometimes almost found it liberating because you don't really you, you're forcing yourself more to observe feeling and emotion as opposed to content. Um so I actually, uh, I actually found it quite liberating. Um, I mean, there's, of course, things when you shoot yourself into a scene and you're like in a third or fourth version of a take and it's all about repetition, then you kind of, some, you will, of course, lose out on these, the subtlety of the performance, you know, and that's a bit of a shame because they were great actors and uh, it's all, I always enjoy when you film, you know, when you have a great actor or even somebody who is just starting out, but finding his voice, how people shape, you know, their performance. And that's, uh, I, I, I just had to leave that to other people, you know. Did it almost make you more focused on other things? Like, is it, it's sort of like the idea of one of your senses was gone, you know what I mean? And now every other sense is heightened because you're no longer maybe thinking about the dialogue as much as you normally would. Did it have any effect on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, in a way you take away one of the, I mean, because I think you have to rely more to stay with your vocabulary. You have to rely more on your senses mm. because your, you, you know, your intellect it can only operate on a central level, you know, because um, some of the dialogue that was content driven, for example, I just, you know, you just kind of forget about it and you you approach the scene more with an intuition, maybe, you know. So, uh, I mean, there's pros and cons. I did, I thought it was a gigantic privilege because I, personally, I try to uh, approach uh, cinematography very much as a, you know, I, I try to forget about the technicalities of it. I sometimes cheekily say, I don't even know how to switch on a camera anymore and, you know, I had the digital cinematography as well has so many things you can, so many numbers and names you can use 
that can really distract you from what it actually means to make a picture. Mm. And uh, hence, I thought it was a real privilege, you know, to be thrown into this situation and, you know, and, and, and work this way. So you're not really a technical guy. You, you sort of like just feeling it. I mean, am I, am I right about that? Well, no, I mean, I am saying it. Of course, you have to have technical knowledge. But I, in my, my own, um, uh, say, my own awareness tries to, uh, because, you know, when we shot celluloid, you know, not that long ago, but say maybe like 10, 15 years ago, you know, you wouldn't know about the exact chemicals that the lab would use. You know, you would know about something. You would know about the temperature if you do push or pull process, but that's about it. The rest, you just, you know, yeah. now I sometimes feel like the terminology is so specific that I would, it would almost mean you would go to a lab and say, oh, are you using, you know, whatever, buyer companies, bleach or whatever, you know? <laughs> that's an interesting analogy. And you're right. I mean, there were, the, the terminology, terminology has just changed. But still, the idea of maybe not knowing every single detail of the processing in with celluloid—that's a really good analogy. I like that. I like that a lot. The the the, uh, the benefit, of course, I think when we shot celluloid was that you would, because of the you know, it had to go to the lab. Some people would touch it, a grader would grade it, and sometimes you would have these these um, findings. You would come and see something and it would look slightly different, maybe even a mistake. And you go, wow, that's amazing. And I think that's the that's the key bit in, in, in when you create, that you leave yourself these spaces that you can still discover something, you know. You mentioned something a few moments ago about not being sure if this was the right project for you because it was so uniquely Korean. And it, it brought something up that I've been meaning to talk to our guests about. And... Um, I always kind of forget, but that just reminded me. When when do you say no to a project? Like, how often and when, and what might be some of the criteria that makes you say, no, this isn't right for me? Because that's a big decision. I mean, you're passing up a lot of money. You're passing oh, yeah, up yeah. the potential to work with new people. It's like, that, yeah. that's a huge, it's one thing mm -hmm. to say no to a small corporate gig, you know, mm -hmm. like a, a, a local area corporate gig or even a small commercial, but to say no to a film or a TV show, that's a big decision. And I'm always curious about when and why people say no to projects. Yeah, I mean, as I, I just, uh, um, uh, at the start, it's a really good question. Uh, at the start, I just want to make sure it's not that I can afford that necessarily. It's not <laughs> that like I'm going through these stacks of scripts. So I'm not, you know, um, I was more probably when I was talking about it in, in relation to Pachinko, I was more thinking about, you know, the sense of responsibility you feel towards you know, a working uh, relationship that I had with the showrunner. So sure. you know, we are, of course, we've gone past. Um, if I had to, when I turn down things and if I can afford turning down, I mean, sometimes it is because it has been uh, a road well-traveled before. You know, for example, recently I got uh, sent something that took place in the uh, world of the British police and I've shot a lot of, a, a lot of work in England for about 15 years. And I, I, I've, you know, when I went there first, you know, I could even photograph one of those red telephone booths. And I would say that's the most remarkable thing because, you know, it was foreign to me. Yeah. And I read this and the scripts were really well written and it was uh, fantastic actors. And it was also a, a, describing a conflict that was beyond police work. So it was, it was a lot about, uh, you know, a little bit like, say, uh, Heat, Michael Mann, you know, it takes mm -hmm. place in the police world, but it's actually about other things. But I could just not 
I could not get my head around how I would create an image that I'd not seen before. Yeah, either as an audience or um, that I would have seen in myself. So if you feel this is just going to be repetitive, then um, I, I try if I can. I try. And I, I won't be a good asset then. You know, people will pay me money. And uh, I think you need to get people that are either hungry or uh, that have something in themselves they want to bring to the project that's unique. You know, I love that. Uh, and that is a big decision to make. I mean, I hate turning down small projects. I can't even imagine turning down something big like that. But you want to grow. You want to learn. You want to, you know, you want to add to your portfolio. But you personally want to grow with every project you have. And then one one thing that probably plays into this decision and that makes a gigantic difference is, you know, we, you know, I spent um, literally. I was in Korea for four months, and I came home. For Christmas, and then I went to uh, Vancouver for three months to shoot on on the, st the stage work. So you're on the road for seven months. Yeah. You know, you're giving up a lot of things. You know, you you give up any kind of social life, any kind of regularity. You know, I'm not a member. I don't have a hobby because I just can't. <laughs> apart from maybe going <laughs> jogging or bicycling by myself, you know. So um, you give up a lot. You you give up seeing your family and. Um, if it's then something that doesn't weigh up with what you, you know, say no to, you know, in terms of a, of a life, if there's nothing that is being brought as an addition to that, then it can get a very lonely job. Did you bring family with you at all? Well, we, we, were, we couldn't because of the pandemic, yeah. you know, because uh, my kids go to school. So normally people travel, you know, they would come and visit me for their vacation, but they would have had to quarantine two weeks each way, yeah. you know, and it was, it was impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's difficult. I mean, what a, what a, what a dramatic change to someone's life when they have to up and go and move and you know, be out there for many, many months. I don't think a lot of people think about the kind of commitment that it takes to do one of these long form series. I mean, that that's a lot of effort. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of time yeah, away. And I think that it's, uh, it's a significant change to the, um, you know, to the work environment uh, for everybody working in the film industry because the, the push is going so strongly towards streaming and go towards multi-episodes. So, you know, normally you would get a call and say, you know, this is a film or like a one-off film for, you know, whatever, however it gets broadcasted for TV or, or the cinema, say in, in TV world, it would have been a, 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 not such a big commitment, but you would say, oh, I'm away for four months or something. You suddenly, you know, people say, they call and say it starts in August, you come back, you know, uh, June next year, you know, it just... Everything is so big, you know, because these streamers just go in and say, well, we're going to do eight episodes or 10 episodes. You know? I know you can only speak for yourself, um, and I, I'm asking you to, but I also want to get your opinion just broadly. I mean, I know you said the industry is moving towards these kind of episodic long-form things because the public is wanting it. But from an industry perspective, is that something that you guys in your industry are, are excited about or or is it a little bit daunting to think that okay well this is the way you know projects are going now it's it's more likely i'm going to get a series than a film yeah i mean you know it's it's uh well first of all i think you know uh it's uh, the what's good about all of this is the level of um high-end production is just extreme you know everything yeah. has to look really amazing so 
you know, it's a, a, people won't debate your request for technology all the time. You know, maybe they will do sometimes, but if you go in and say, we need this and this and this, most of the people say yes, because we will, you know, we need, we want this to look unique and good. So that's a good thing. I also think that the entire color pipeline, you know, it's an amazing fact that we can watch things on the computer, on the iPad, on the phone, it all looks the same now. So you really can ensure consistency. Mm. Um, I think there's so much stuff, you know, I don't know who's going to watch that all. I mean, that's, you know, I, I mean, I can, I never keep up because I will, I'm working. But so the question is, I, I read an article recently that said, if somebody in the UK would try to watch everything that was on that week, it would take 86 years. You know, it's just <laughs> oh you go like crazy. And what does that also to an industry? Because, you know, when I uh, started out, we would follow certain people. You know, we cherish cinematographers. You, of course, we cherish directors. You know, that's really hard to build a. You know, to build. You know, this is more about what you know the logo that's at the end or the front of the show. It's not that much. Of course, we've got these. You know, gigantic artists that. You know, Netflix is also taking and you know putting out on the poster. But in essence, there's hundreds and hundreds of people you would never know the name. You know. Yeah. So it's a, I think it's a, it's an exciting time, but it's also not without challenge. Yeah. Let's talk about the look of Pachinko. Um, you know, we had mentioned that there are multiple time periods. Um, there's a, a very specific episode seven that's very different. We'll get to that. Um, but just in general, how do you describe the look of Pachinko and being responsible for the first three episodes, right? You did one, two, three, and then seven. Largely, it was a kind of your vision that ushered the overall look of the show. So, what is it? How do you describe it? Uh, <laughs> have a look and see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm bad with you know. So I can describe the process how we got there. So we spoke. Yeah, about there you go. Period, so it was clear we wanted to go down large format uh, cinematography. The next step is choosing the lens. So we looked at large format glass. And um, I mean, of course, there's, you know, people are very used to uh, glass that has a lot of uh, aberrations and leaves an imprint, you know, goes soft to the edges, you know, strange flares. We felt we wanted a very, something that was very immediate. So we wanted to avoid an additional optical layer that he would, you know, would distract you. So it had to be clear. The next thing is then, but clear means clean oftentimes, and we didn't definitely didn't want to go clean. So we searched for, for quite a while to find a good performing large format lens that had enough um, of a beauty and attitude to it, but didn't have too much uh, aberrations and bouquet. And that were the Pana, Panavision made the, made the beautiful lens system called the Panaspeeds, and those we chose. Panaspeeds. And then we went and the next step was uh, or the camera was chosen. We went with a Sony Venice because I think it has a beautiful depiction of color. It was always clear. We wanted uh, something that was colorful. And uh, the Sony has a great ability to depict color in the highlights. And so we chose the Sony and the Panaspeeds. And then we go, um, uh, and I, I try to start shooting tests very, very early in, um, in pre-production. So even just getting a camera, a couple of lenses, just shoot something. So we to, to establish a common language with the director. So we shot these tests 
And I sent the footage to New York to a grader that I've worked with, who is a bit of a legend, is Tom Poole. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and we um, discussed, uh, you know, finding a lot. I try to find one single lot, almost like a as if you were to look for a celluloid print emulsion. And I sent a couple of reference images. I, I stumbled across some photography by a Magnum photographer called Bert Glynn who did some very early uh, color photography in Japan. So, you know, you, you see how the colors uh, don't roll off all in sync, you know, like the reds might develop slightly different in the highlights and then in the blacks and the blues. So it's more of an organic feel. So uh, I sent him that and I sent him some uh, color photography of Gordon Parks, who I really admire. And with those, he went into his laboratory <laughs> and turned the knobs and came back uh, with something that, you know, had a very organic feel in terms of color, a saturated feel, but kept very beautiful skin tones and had this amazing photochemical look. And then with that lot, we went back and shot a big makeup test and costume test with the, uh, uh, with the cast. We tweaked a bit and then that was that. That's the look. So it should feel, you know, I always feel that color can guide the eye, of course, but it can also just instill a sense of beauty. When you look at an image and you just say, oh, that's amazing. And it's so hard to put it in words. And that's what, you know, in these eight or nine weeks that we prepped, that's what I was trying to get to, like an almost a, a sweet spot where you react emotionally. And then everybody, ironically, in the room will agree. He said, that's it, you know. So that's just what we did. I can't put it into a single pitch line. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we don't want that. This is a long-form conversation. We got to fill airtime. So Good. that was perfect. I'm actually looking right now at Gordon Parks. Uh, I, I am, I'm not really familiar with um, Gordon Parks' photography, but in a quick search, it seems like black and white is pretty much his thing. And the <laughs> color photography is very... Rare. In fact, I'm even seeing an article here that I'll put in the show notes saying Gordon Park's long forgotten color photographs. Um, yeah, I, I stumbled across those. I just know him as a character and as a filmmaker, of course, an yeah. artist. But I stumbled across these. I think he did it uh, either for Life magazine. I think he went south or something. He did, he did a uh, in Louisiana. He was uh, doing some documentary work. And it has a great immediacy, you know, in, in the way that he photographs the people in their living space, but also it had, it had a beautiful, beautiful color range. So, you know. There's a lot of exteriors in uh, Pachinko, at least in the first few episodes. And, you know, it's a great way to really understand the landscape, the environment that these people are living in. But there must be some challenges, you know, as a cinematographer filming outside with the sun. I know there's one scene in particular that you called out in other interviews, and I'd love to talk about it now, is the dragonfly scene in the very <laughs> first episode. Because you are shooting at actual sunset, and there's certainly some challenges with that. Can you just talk to us about kind of like your overall philosophy for exteriors in Pachinko and also that scene? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the strange, I think there's two contradicting forces at work. One is, of course, every cinematographer would always like to shoot either in the morning or in the evening and avoid the high sun. Yeah. 
Now, um, uh, I'm always a slightly, you know, you, you, when you do your prep, you, you of course nominate that and you say, oh, uh, you talk to the first and he said, I would love to shoot this there. And then they say, oh yeah, of course noted, you know, and then three weeks later they come back with a schedule and it disregards <laughs> like every single time. And sometimes it is true. It is not possible, you know, because we have to, you know, value whatever turnaround times, actors availability and all that. So I've made my peace with that. Oftentimes you cannot choose the the time of day, but that's crucial, you know. And in that particular instance, we wanted to shoot it. Uh, we had this field, and uh, actually in the actual village where we shot most uh, of all the farm stuff. And ironically, for reasons I don't know, that field burned down like three days before we wanted to shoot. Oh my god! And oh my god. Um, then they had to find because we couldn't change the schedule. We had to find this other spot. Um, uh, and we just by chance found this little, this little perfect little field that was perfectly, you know, orientated towards yeah. the West. And uh, it was, I think, on our first or second shooting day. So we were still struggling with the different working methods and communication. So we finished our work in this one place, jumped in cars and drove over there. And then we waited and the trucks people had sent the trucks to the wrong place. So I was just thinking, man, this is going to be crazy. So by the time everybody, you know, realized they'd made mistakes. And by the time we, we were ready to go, we literally had 20 minutes and we literally put the steady cam onto our uh, a camera operator, a lovely gentleman called John Clothier. And we just shot and that's it, you know, and oh then God. the spur of the moment, you know, and the light was perfect. I mean, you could have probably, you know, overworked it um, endlessly, but it was just right the way it was. There's one little thing I would love to add, yeah. Um, because we we just touched on it earlier about you know us having set up the look, of course, in block one. Um, in this particular instance, you know, block two was um, directed by Justin Sean and shot by Andy Cheng, who's like his longtime collaborator, and we I heavily lobbied with. Um, the uh, showrunner that we should approach this less in the traditional series way with having established a Bible in block one. And then everybody just executes that um, because Justin is, you know, and Koganada are so different directors and, and, and authors and independent filmmakers that it felt it would be too limiting to, you know, not have them have their own freedom. So they took some deliberate choices and, and, and veered off, our track, for example, we never used handheld because we didn't feel it was appropriate. They shot tons of handheld, you know. We didn't didn't differentiate by lenses. They did uh, decide to differentiate the timelines by lens choice. So, you know, there was. I think we kept it a bit more open, which I thought was creatively more more liberating for everybody. They must have loved that, not having to come in at the halfway point and do you know follow someone else's Bible. That that's. That's a really well, that's a gift and, for them. Yes, well, yes, and yeah, but we also were um, due to the nature of the COVID schedule. We actually had to shoot uh, simultaneously, so that meant we had one crew, and we would shoot. Koganard and I would, for example, do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, Friday. And, he and Justin would take over. So um, it was it was actually very close, close working environment. And that's also, you know, brings you back to your question that you initially asked about, you know, serial production. And one of the uh, downsides is, you know, if you shoot a movie, 
you're only responsible for yourself. So if I get behind, I can say, oh, I'll make it up next week. Or I can I can really decide where to put my emphasis and I spend the money here and I save the money there. Where um, if you are in a serial context, you know, there's other people. So you cannot spend all the money because Block 2 needs some money. Or in our mm-hmm. instance, you know, we, if, if we wanted, if we were shooting on the Wednesday and we wanted to go over, we couldn't because on Thursday morning they had to go to a certain location and they had to get up at six o'clock and, you know, so there you are far more entwined in a serial context, and um, that's limiting at times. There's another scene that I'd like to talk about from episode one. Uh, we're essentially in a fishing village. I mean, the, fishing is a major part of these characters' lives, especially in the earlier episodes. And Sunja's character has this connection to the water. And after her father dies, she goes back to the water where she goes and fishes. So there's there is some underwater work here. There's some crane work that you bring right out into this cove. It must have been filled with challenges. I mean, that's a that's a big <laughs> giant crane is a hard thing to move around, especially bringing it right to the edge of the sea in a cove. I mean, talk to me about that decision and the challenges you faced. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a that's a good because you know in the beginning of our conversation, I. Uh, created this illusion of being not technically interested and just kind of shooting from the hip and making it up as I go along. <laughs> so that is the complete opposite. So uh, we we had to do quite a bit of world building. So the actual village where we shot the farm, uh, the boarding house is in the central bit of Korea. So there's no water around. So um, we had to create the world and, you know, she would take this passage and uh, and walk to the water and how we would make that work in filmic terms. And there was a cove near Busan, um, which uh, where the actual, they still dive uh, for fishing. There, The, the oh, wow. women uh, are still there that still do it. And um, so that was a very uh, um, challenging environment because it had, I don't know, 120 or 200 steps and this little ladder coming down and uh, you of course couldn't carry a crane down that route so i went to that place like four or five times i went with the first ad and i went with Koganada a couple of times because we really had to make sure wherever we would bring the crane that's where it would sit and you wouldn't be able to move it on the beach so that was that took a lot of prep and also you know we wanted we really plotted out where, where she would run and how long in the water she'd go. And then you had to be, she had to get a ship with a gigantic other crane on the ship that would, you know, travel into that cove and then lift our telescopic techno crane onto the beach. And, you know, so, and then it, it was all done days before and it was, a, it was a major, major operation, but it, it worked really well. And then the underwater stuff. Well, hold on. Before is, you go to underwater, yeah. I want to make sure I'm visualizing this right. So you said it's like 20 or so steps going down into the cove. 120. Uh, 120. Oh my God, even yeah. more. All right. So did you, so what did you, you basically drove your crane up to the edge of the top of that staircase and then no 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 we had the crane would actually we we had to hire a ship in busan harbor that would take the crane and bring it over the water because there was no way you could lift it down yeah carry it down so we hired this this ship which had another crane on it uh, you know just for harbor work uh, which made uh, our crane look tiny <laughs> because it weighs, I don't know how many tons. It's a 50-foot tank that weighs, I don't know, probably 
uh, I don't know, a ton. I don't know. Anyway, so um, and then the ship took him in on the harbor, drove uh, uh, in the morning of the day before, two days before, and then lifted the crane onto the environment. And then we had the grips built this platform and then they would, you know, they would put the crane on there and, and it was tidal. So we had to kind of, you know, negotiate where exactly it could sit because the tide would come in and out. Yeah. Oh you my know, God. So, um, what a complicated, did any, I'm, I'm surprised you didn't get pushback from producers. Someone must have said, do we really need to do this? <laughs> like, oh yeah, no, no, we had, we had those conversations <laughs> a lot because, um, yeah, because there's, you know, different ways of, and, and here we come back to our initial, uh, to the start of our conversation that, you know, that space, you know, how do you pick space? Yeah. Of course, you know, there would be one school of thought would have said, get four cameras, place them all, and then let the girl run and go swimming, and then you film it, you know, and then get maybe a, a camera on the water. And Koganada, you know, said, no, let's have her walk in one shot. You know, so that was clear. We wanted to do it in one shot, and there's yeah. only one cut in the in the in the because the kid is mourning the loss of her dad, and we really wanted to stay with her and you know go into the water with her and experience the space. So, so we had to stand our ground, and they were you know that's uh, we had a good production team. I mean, they were questioning heavily, but in the end, they said, okay, let's try and pull it off. You know? Yeah, but, but you know the, the the Korean language is very hierarchical, so. It's very polite and, you know, you never, you would never dare to tell somebody who you regard superior that something isn't working. And to get through all this politeness to really figure out, will you be able to really do this, you know, <laughs> will you get the ship? That was a, a very, you know, complicated process. Talk to me about the underwater scenes. Yeah, and then so we had, you know, that that's the other world. So you couldn't do any underwater work there, of course, because it's the open sea. And so we actually built a little uh, pool um, in Vancouver that was actually quite small by dimension. I think it must have been maximum of maybe like a diameter of maybe 10 meters or something, maybe a bit more, maybe 15, uh, a circular pool, you know, and it was probably three meters deep. And and we set that up in the parking lot, and then we had a um, uh, a very good underwater cinematographer, and she uh, and we we shot it for about yeah two 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 thirds of a day, so you know it, it that was crucial just the choice of lens to really you know go back and and photo because in essence it's the same space you just have to. You know, by by changing lenses, you have to make it look her tiny as if she's in the open sea, and then you swim with her. And, yeah. But um, we really have to credit Brendan Haggerty for doing an amazing work. Absolutely. All right, let's get to episode seven, which I just watched this morning. It's fresh in my mind and just stunningly beautiful. And um, it's a departure from the show. Like a lot is different about this episode. Uh, I think probably the biggest change is the aspect ratio. You um, immediately tighten it up. It's a smaller kind of box within a box. And um, I'd like to actually start there. And your thoughts on, first of all, you can tell us about what this episode is, why it's different from the series. But I'm interested in how you made the choice to have the different aspect ratio and what role does a change in aspect ratio play over the course of a series like this? Well, um, so first of all, uh, we, I, I want to credit Sue Yu, the um, showrunner, because she came in uh, at a, you know quite early on adamant that this had to be very, very different. And also she's a very uh, visual person. 
So she also said, you know, let's shoot it at a different aspect ratio. That was that was very clear from the beginning. This stems partly from the fact that I think the uh, episode tells a backstory that the novel never explores. So uh, it's about this character Hansu, and she wrote uh, um, this uh, episode about why he's become who he has become, which was never. Um, uh, that story was never told in the novel. So I think that already in itself was a reason to almost make it feel like standalone, like a commentary more yeah. than, you know, a part of the regular adaptation. Um, in addition to that, it tells the story of the uh, Yokohama earthquake. And of course, that was a very, very, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an epic um, uh, uh, disaster on an epic scale and the script wasn't shy of describing that. So of course we are also limited in terms of the means that we have to actually, you know, show an earthquake. So I always felt that the interest in when you limit your aspect ratio is you, you start to work with the, you know, you almost make the audience imagine a world that happens outside of your aspect ratio. You know, you can frame things in a way that, will evoke the thought of a continued world within the mind of the viewer without having to show it, you know? And I think that was a great uh, advantage for me creatively by choosing, you know, by going four by three. In essence, it's a four by three frame, but we experimented a lot with uh, aspect ratios on the show because uh, Koganada had a really beautiful idea in the beginning where he thought, you know, normally we had an roughly an um, aspect ratio of one to two, uh, two to one to two point uh, two. So, um, and uh, he thought, what happens if we push the um, if we don't letterbox the image with black and uh, top and bottom, but if we push the the image up and only have one black banner at the bottom. And that's where we put the subtitles. Mm. So the subtitles would feel more like a graphic element within the 16 by nine container that it would be on an iPad. And it feels more like a banner, you know, of a Polaroid. And those subtitles would not sit in the image. And that was, we shot a lot of tests. We the, the, That's how we ended up with one to um, 2.2 because it felt like the black would be big enough for to accommodate subtitles but not too big to take away the the value of the image in the end apple decided not to do that because they felt there was so much of an ask of the audience that they felt you know if we also go this way maybe people we are so used to reading uh, subtitles on the image yeah. you know but because we started this process we ended up with one to 2.2 and also that then affected the way that the four by three would be depicted. So why, yeah. that's why it feels like almost double shrunk, you know, Yes, because you could have gone full format on the four by three, but they wanted to stay truthful to the original series. So maintain the same feeling of letterbox and within that letterbox, we would do the four by three image. So yeah. it's actually quite a small, small image, but it's of, you know, it's a beautiful format to frame for, and um, especially when it comes to portraiture and then large format, you know, and also it's, you know, because it's so used, it's it's also very much caters to, you know, for lack of better words, like an Asian sensibility, you know, the way that things are compositionally, you know, I think there, there's one filmmaker that um, 
Koganada really cherishes his Ozu. You know, he shot uh, most of his work in four by three, always using the same lens. Mm -hmm. And it just has a different, um, it's hard to say, you know, because we are, you know, our cinematic uh, or my cinematic heritage always strives for the snake, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like the, um, yeah. You know, anamorphic as being the king's uh, aspect ratio. But in a way, you know, um, I think the four by three just gives you a different way of accentuating the verticals as well. So I love it anyway. Well, I think the the aspect ratio was was probably the best suited for the earthquake scenes yeah. when you're running through the town because you real it is all about the vertical in those scenes. Yeah. Like yeah. you're running through these narrow streetways and there's chaos everywhere and it's crazy. Um, talk to me about the way that you depicted this earthquake scene because it's a major shift in the storyline. It dashes all hopes of our main character coming to America. And it also is like the there's two huge extremes in episode seven where you depict the ultra wealthy and then you now have this major destruction with the town falling into rubble because of the earthquake. So you have a lot to do in this episode. And yes, um and yeah. Yeah, and 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 also, you know, I mean, you can't. It's hard to find. You know, we shot it on a backlot in Korea. So in Korea, they have this tradition of, you know, building these backlots for a successful series, and then the backlots become a little bit like a museum. So you can, you know, probably what is probably the same in that used to be in LA. You, know, you go to the Universal lot, and actually, there's more people traveling around in the cars looking at stuff than there's actual filming. <laughs> yes. So we had we ended up on these backlots in Korea that were quite limiting in uh, in size, but that was the only place where we could actually pull off this degree of uh, destruction. Um, so we talked about the aspect ratio enabling enabling us to you know only show part of a world and leave the rest. Um, to the uh, imagination of the audience. And one step further down that line was that we chose in the actual earthquake to tell it very strongly only from Hansu's point of view. So there's there was a sequence when they, he's just gone home, uh, not to the home of his American, uh, the family that he uh, schools the boy for. Uh, and then they uh, try to escape the flames that are approaching the house. And then it's this mayhem sequence that you probably referred to. But we build a, we, um, the actor, Minho Lee, was wearing a body cam so where the camera gets actually physically attached to his body. Mm. Um, and uh, we just had him run through this mayhem with the camera in front and one on his back. And that was kind of the core uh, uh, visual um, uh, or should I say that? that? That was like the, the say, the shot of the, of the heart of that sequence. And then we did only some POV work uh, in addition to that. Because I think that's also a very strong point of working with Koganada as a director. He's somebody that's very influenced by form as a way of thinking. So, you know, in these instances, we would just try to make one decision, say it's his POV, limit the field of view, and go. And that's it. And then everything else we might try to make work within those confines. Yeah, you had a lot of this like ash that was yeah. floating through the scene. It was everywhere. Um, I, I know you were on that back lot, but I can imagine having that much ash, that much like white covering on everything must have been lighting-wise a bit of a challenge because you essentially have a giant bounce now everywhere you look and everywhere you go. 
Was that something that was challenging to work with? Uh, it's just what's challenging is to get, you know, you cannot, you can hardly get enough of that stuff. So the SFX people would say, yeah, yeah, that's good. And you go and you got it more, more, mm -hmm. you know, you really have to, the sequence when they actually come out of the boxing hall, that was actually shot in Canada. And then the uh, later stuff was uh, shot earlier in Korea. So we had to, we did these tests, what kind of texture we would find and we would use and you just have to bombard people with it. So it really feels overpowering. I think, you know, if it almost has to feel like if you're going down the route of real destruction and and and, and uh, stuff in the air, you just have to double up or triple up all the time. So it's an overwhelming effect. And then lighting almost becomes secondary, you know, because, but to encourage people to go that strongly and also to be able to work with, you know, extras, human human beings having to run through that, you know, yeah. without masks, you know, that was uh, challenging. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to discuss with you is a lesson learned. I mean, every project you, I'm sure you leave with lessons, with something that you'll might bring with you to another project or uh, looking back and thinking, oh, I would have, you know, I would have done that differently. Or what did you learn from your experience on Pachinko? That's a good question. Um, one thing is definitely, uh, you know, this kind of block shooting system we devised. I think it enabled us to shoot in a COVID-restricted environment, and it would actually enable us probably to shoot the show. If somebody had had a different idea uh, of how to schedule this, people would have probably said, let's wait until the pandemic is over. Uh, but that's challenging, you know, to share a team with another set, or another director and another DOP. That is just, I wouldn't, I would try not to go down this route again, because you're so much treading onto somebody else's uh, life in a way. If I make a decision, it will affect these guys immediately. If they make a decision. So that was, that was less than ideal, but, uh, you know, enabled us to shoot it. Um, that's probably on the side where I think, hmm, I wouldn't do this again. I would definitely go to Korea in a second. You know, uh, that was just, uh, it's just a remarkable place. And I thought it was a, a gigantic uh, luxury to be able to work there, you know. Um, what a great yeah. experience. Well, the show is awesome. Like I said earlier, the entire series should be out by the time this episode is released. So if you are hearing us talk, all eight episodes are available on Apple TV Plus. And it just, it's its a really good series, great story, really good acting. The cinematography is beautiful, of course. Um, it's called Pachinko and it is on Apple TV Plus right now. Florian, where can people go to learn more about you? <laughs> where can people go to yeah, learn more Yeah, your website, you? your Instagram, what do you want oh, to plug? Oh, I see, I see a oh, man. I'm See, listen, I am not technical I, and I am not the man of social Well, what were media. you thinking but I was listen, saying? I've got, you, you, you punch in my name that will probably get you to my website. <laughs> Um, and I've got an Instagram feed that I never really attend. You know where they should go? In October, there's a film that's going to hopefully come out, I think, if they make it. It's called Tar, T-A-R. And it's a director, uh, Todd Field, um, who has made his new film, which of all places by chance shot in, uh, in Berlin. Uh, it stars Kate Blanchett, and it should be up in October. And that's when you can see something that I tried. Very is different it, from Pachinko. Is it a horror movie? 
No, no, no. It's a, it's about a, a a female conductor of a um, Kate Blanchett plays the female conductor of a famous German orchestra that gets kind of um, uh, caught up in this kind of Me Too storm. So it's a really interesting, really interesting film. Todd Field, fantastic filmmaker, and an interesting commentary and about you know cancel culture and all of that. It's really oh, that's cool. Film. You also shot Antlers, right? I did. Yeah, I, did. I, I, but I, when I found out that you shot that, because I hadn't seen it yet, but it's been on my like wish list of things to see. But as you know, it's like there's no time to see anything. Yeah. But the trailer looks so good that I, I, I love that. I love horror movies, so I will definitely see it. And I was like, damn it, if I had known that, I would have saw that ahead of time. And we, uh, yeah, and I, I would have said that that would have been my nicer end line for this beautiful interview with you. I would have said, let's go and see Antlers because I'm very <laughs> proud of the look. It's, uh, ah. And it got a bit lost in the pandemic, you know, in, in its uh, feature film style, the theatrical release. But uh, and, you know, it, it, we talk so much about streaming. I think these kind of films, you know, like Antlers, it's still a communal experience. You know, you have to go and see him in the cinema with other people in the dark. And I think now, as uh, fortunately, this pandemic comes to a slow end. We should all go and sit together in dark rooms again. It will make the world a better place. Yeah, I've been doing that more and more for the show, just seeing stuff in theaters. And it's like, it, it really is such a difference. My God, yeah. it's so, I just saw um, Everything Everywhere All at Once in a, in a theater, which was just such a great experience. Anyway, the movie's so insane. But I can't even, I can't imagine that looking that on a phone or on an iPad while on a plane. You just can't. Yeah. Yeah. You need that experience. But anyway, we're rambling on now. And so go see Pachinko, but then also go see Antler. I'm going to see Antlers. So I think everyone out there should be watching it as well. And when you are watching it, you'll know it's the work of Florian Hofmeister. Thank <laughs> so you so much, to man. See him. Thank you, Florian, for being on. Thank you. I want to thank Florian Hofmeister, BSC, for coming on the show today. Check out his work on Pachinko and, of course, his IMDb. We'll put all of that stuff in the show notes. I want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby, for putting the show together. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. And Dave Siegel, seagullsound.com. Dave's the guy that mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. And I want to encourage all of you guys, head over to our YouTube and subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, for a couple reasons. One, you get to see the interview, which is nice because you get to see the cinematographers, get their gestures, get their hand motions, and just kind of really experience the conversation. But also, we are putting a lot of behind-the-scenes footage, a lot of B-roll, a lot of you know photos and things to a company and really make the interview more well-rounded. We've been getting a lot of great feedback on those newer videos and, of course, our show shorts, which are little clips of each show. And we've really been building our YouTube page, and we want to just continue doing it. There's a community forming there, and we want you to be part of it. So please, join, subscribe, hit the hit the uh, notification bell, and let us know what you think. We want to improve. We want to get bigger and better on our YouTube page, and we really would appreciate your feedback. So please, go there, check it out, and let us know what you think. Also, we sometimes even get to put photography that is just like on the cell phones of our cinematographers, stuff that they filmed on sets. It's not stuff you're, you'll just be finding on, you know, online somewhere. This is like exclusive stuff oftentimes that we get from our cinematographers. So please do check it out. Go to go create, go to gocreativeshow.com and you can get to us, our YouTube there, but you can certainly just go to YouTube and search Go Creative Show. I want to thank you all for joining us today and we will see you next week on another episode 
of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. 